We're going to be reading from the book of Micah this morning. We're going to start in chapter 2, um, move to verse, or chapter 6, and then go back to chapter 2. So we're starting on page 920 in your Red Pew Bibles. So, Micah chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a felon of his inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, men will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should it be said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord angry? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to him whose ways are upright? Lately my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Get up, go away, for this is not your resting place, because it is defiled, it is ruined beyond all remedy. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he should be just the prophet for this people. Now chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountain, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak king of Moab counseled and what Balaam son of Bor answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Back to chapter 2, verses uh, 12 to 13. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. 
This is the word of the Lord. Tucked away at the end of the Old Testament are a series of really small books. So small, in fact, that it's easy to just flip right by them with tomes like the Psalms and the more major prophets right before them, and then to find yourself quickly into the New Testament. These 12 books, in fact, have sometimes been considered a single book, the Book of the Twelve, and this was because they're so small that together they easily fit on a single scroll. Obadiah has merely one chapter, and while a couple of them have as many as 14, most of them only have three or four chapters in them. These are small books. That's the only reason why we call them minor. They're minor in comparison to Isaiah or Ezekiel, only in length, but in importance of message. Well, they're hard to ignore, and they're far too easy for us to just flip past. So over these summer months, we'll take a book a week to look at together and to get a high-level view of what it is that this prophet was saying to the people that they spoke to in their time, and what it is that this prophet might be saying again to us in a fresh way today through God's Spirit. We'll see the iniquity and the sins that the prophets witnessed in their time, the solutions that they proposed, and we'll work together to imagine the ways that God desires to change us, to transform his church here, to impact this city as well. This is certainly a series that will require you to do some hard work. You will have to do the work of listening for God's voice speaking to you speaking to you and not only to people long ago. You'll have to do the work of listening for God's voice speaking to our church, not only to the nations of Judah and Israel. And this is hard work because the words of prophets are almost always unwelcome words. This has always been the case. When Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, he says that Jerusalem has always killed the prophets has always stoned those who were sent to her. And here in our reading today from Micah, we hear again the people's unwillingness to hear the prophets. Do not preach, they preach. You see, we all have sermons that we like to preach to ourselves, don't we? Sermons that I think sound a lot like this little sermon that Micah's audience prepares for the prophet to hear. That we don't need to hear the bad news, that we have no need to be ashamed, that God would never be impatient or upset. Why would he be? He's our good father. And I see some parents in the room, and I'm sure parents can attest that parents are never annoyed or disappointed in their children at all. Right? It's just not good parenting. No. But we preach soothing messages to ourselves sometimes in order to drown out the much harder to hear message that comes from the sermon that God is actually preaching, from the prophets that God is actually sending to us. So throughout this series, you are invited to listen openly, to listen honestly, to not preach over the sermons that you'll hear, not to prophesy against the words of God heard in these minor prophets to trust that even in the most difficult message, even in the most drastic call to change, there is always hope and good news to be found. 
and that the preaching offered by God contains in it the very lessons which we need to learn to follow in the paths of wisdom and find the ways of life itself. So this week, we're looking at Micah. Let me tell you a little bit about Micah's time, where it was that he was preaching, when it was he was preaching. He preached in a time when there was a shocking contrast between the excess wealth of the rich and the dire need of the poor. A contrast made that much worse by the horrific injustices perpetrated by the ruling class. He preached in a time when people were deprived of lands that they'd been connected to for generations, and they were made economically dependent on the new occupiers of those lands. Nevertheless, the rulers and the religious elite of this time were keen to indulge the base desires of the people that they should have been serving and seeking justice on behalf of. Micah actually says that if somebody came along and said, I will prophesy plenty of wine and beer for you, that that person would be received as a good and proper prophet of the triune God, of the Most High God. And I wish that I could say that sounds entirely unfamiliar. Unfortunately, I'm sure you've already noticed that these same problems exist in fresh ways for us today. We are all familiar with the ongoing conversation about wealth inequality, especially in the West but around the world, of the obscene abundance of the wealthy and the continued need even for adequate shelter in our own very wealthy city. We live in a country where the indigenous people whose lives and spirituality was and is deeply connected to their relationship with the land They were defrauded of their homes by treaties not lived up to. They were robbed of their inheritance through generations of cultural genocide, who are now made economically dependent in a land that they were once the stewards of. And we have a government in Ontario that may not prophesy plenty of wine, but that did promise buck a beer. And we have a federal government that seems more interested in the good optics of justice than the hard work and political cost of actually executing it. And friends, I know that sounded really political, right? But in ancient Israel, the political life of the nation and the religious life of the church, of the people of God, were one and the same. Now, of course, in 21st century Canada, we're an enlightened society, and we want our religion and our politics as far apart from each other as they possibly can be. We get uncomfortable maybe when the minister starts to talk about justice outside of the realm of what the church actually controls, outside of what each of us may individually have the power to accomplish. That's why I wore my collar today, actually. (laughs) Because I need you to hear what our church actually believes about the connection between the church and the state. This is a subordinate standard of our church. All our elders are meant to uphold this. I made promises about this. We believe the church and the state are intimately related with manifold overlying concerns that are and common responsibility to the Lord. We reject all doctrines which assume whether on sectarian or on secular grounds that the church's life should be or can be completely disassociated from the life of the civil state. We believe this, I'm preaching this, because our God is a political God coveting fields and seizing them, as was addressed at the beginning of chapter 2, that doesn't sound anything like the worship of God in God's temple. But Micah speaks out. 
because God will not allow it to go on. And why should Israel be surprised by this? What has God done to them? How has he burdened them? Well, he brought them up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed them from the land of slavery. God, it seems, didn't like a political and economic system that oppressed his people, and so God intervened. The people needed leadership, real, physical, governance leadership, and God sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Again and again, the political realities of their neighbors impacted the people of Israel, and again and again, Israel's God stepped in and provided an answer for that injustice. And this is something God did to Israel. It's something God burdened Israel with. See, there's actually a responsibility attached to each of these actions of God, an expectation that God has that has burdened his people, and it's not wrapped up in the trappings of religious life. Thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of olive oil, these things are not the things which will please the God of Israel or satisfy God's expectations on the people that have time and again been saved from injustice themselves saved from oppression, harsh treatment, and human hubris. No, none of that matters, you see, because God has shown Israel what is good. God has shown them what is required of them to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with their God. So what has God done to you? How has God burdened us? Take a moment and answer this. God seems very interested in our answers to this. How are we telling God's story of action in our lives? Because the way we understand God's action in our lives changes the way we act toward the world. Answer me, God says. In what ways has God saved you personally from injustice? How has God shown kindness to us as a community? Try to actually list for yourselves the times and the places in your life where you knew freedom because of God's hand, where you had hope because of God's promises. I'm actually going to give you a few seconds. Think about it. Answer God. I hope you've thought of a thing or two, a time or two, because those things, they are the things that God has burdened you with, burdened us with. Those things come to us as a free gift, yes, but a free gift with an expectation attached that we will do likewise, because we have been shown what is good. Firsthand in our own lives, in the story of our community here at this church, we have been shown what is good. We have seen what is required of us. We too are called to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. It's for this reason that that declaration of faith concerning church and nation continues by saying the church's preaching, sacraments, and discipline confront the nation with Christ's judgment and grace. In fulfillment of the law of Christ, she engages in a special work of Christian love. Her members take full share as their Christian calling in commerce, politics, 
and other social action. In every sphere of our life, individually and together as a church, commercially, politically, socially, we are called to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. This is the best-known verse in the book of Micah, and there's a reason for that. This is an apt summary of what the prophet is calling the people to throughout the whole book, and it remains a poignant piece of advice for all people who are endeavoring to live a life of following God in our world today. Each of these three actions is a unique challenge for us individually and collectively. So first, we are called to act justly, which is a call to do more than simply to not act unjustly. God calls us to intervene for the sake of justice itself. In any situation where you have power, however small it may be, if you can exercise that power on behalf of the oppressed or the marginalized or the forgotten, you are burdened to do so because you have seen how your God has done it for you. It has sometimes amazed me in the last number of months since my ordination how the, even the smallest modicum of power, just being able to sign letters as the Reverend Nick Reno, has changed some things how it can encourage the pursuit of justice or the unsticking of cogs of bureaucracy in the church or in other spheres of life, how it can work towards resolving long-standing injustices that just needed even the most trivial of interventions to acknowledge, to address, to begin to search out resolution for. And this change has made me wonder how much have I actually been empowered all along to intervene in situations like that. How many times have I seen a person treated unfairly and have not spoken up? When have I seen a system misused or misunderstood and have not been brave enough to share my thoughts? And how different would those situations be if I had always imagined myself as a child called by God to act justly, to always act for justice in whatever way I understand that I may be? even if it doesn't always work out smoothly or easily. And so this morning for you, I hope that Micah's prophecy encourages you to view yourself in that way today, that you are a child of the Most High God, that you have been given power and authority to act justly, to intervene on behalf of justice, that there are situations you have some peace of control over. There are actions that you could be taking even this week to make your worlds more just and more right for people who've been oppressed for far too long. But some of us are probably prone toward acting justly already. This is something that we've seen a groundswell of support for in our culture, and its virtues are extolled broadly, right? I expect all of you were tracking with me through that last part. But perhaps even the quickest to justice among us would find challenge in the next call, that we are to love mercy, to love kindness, to love has said. This word is about faithfulness to those who we are in relationship with. And it's that same faithfulness which God is showing throughout the book of Micah. God is showing faithfulness as people are called to return to God and God seeks them out 
promising to gather all of them together again, despite their injustice, despite their unfaithfulness to God's ways. God will not abandon them. Mercy and not punishment will have the last word. We are not only called to act justly, we are also called to love mercy. Loving mercy means rejoicing when forgiveness is offered, seeking reconciliation with those who have wronged us, to not deny our brothers and sisters even when their actions are evil, but to always call them back in love. Call them back into relationship with God and with us, what they were created for. We love mercy because God has shown mercy to us. It's God's mercy that we will remember today at the table he provides, and we show it to others because God has shown us what is good. This is less popular in our culture. Forgiveness gets very little airtime, and the pursuit of justice has its share of casualties for stupid mistakes where even the repentant are unable to survive the outpouring of judgment from Twitter trolls and the firestorm of a trial by media. In our actions of justice, we are always to be tempered by our love of mercy, of kindness, of faithfulness to God and to the ways of God which are beyond the ways of our world. Finally, we are called to walk humbly with our God. This is about right relationship with God, understanding our relationship with our Creator, that God is God, that God is leading us in paths of righteousness, paths of justice for God's name's sake. This is about walking closely with our God, careful to follow the path laid before us. It's humility which chooses to follow a path and not to try to forge a new way. And it is the same humility which allows us to constantly be called to new acts of justice into deeper love of mercy, because God will continue to show us what is good. If we act justly and we love mercy, but we don't walk humbly with our God, we'll soon find that somewhere along the way, our acts of justice became nothing more than empty moralism at best. And perhaps even it had become injustice in disguise we'll find that our love of mercy was shallow, that we tired of showing kindness, that we could no longer name why anything less than what people deserve is good at all. Walking humbly with our God allows us to experience the promise that is made in the end of chapter two of Micah, that the one who breaks open the way will go up before us. We will break through the gate and go out. Our king will pass through before us the Lord at our head. Church, this week, wherever you go and whatever you do, do not be satisfied only with not acting unjustly. Choose to act out justice with whatever means and power you may have as one who has been shown what is good. As you are wronged, as you experience the injustice that God has not yet undone in this world, do not be satisfied with the exact measure of punishment but long instead for mercy, even as you yourselves have been shown mercy. Choose to show the very face of Christ even to those who mean you harm. And wherever you go, go knowing that the Lord your God goes before you, making paths of justice for you to walk in and choose to walk humbly in them, 
knowing that they are for your good. Therefore, the good of our world, and they are to the praise of his glorious name, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and forevermore. Amen. Pray with me. You have shown us, O God, what is good. And what do you require of us but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you, our God? Grip our hearts this week and in the weeks ahead, we pray. Mold us and fashion us to be more and more like you, to find joy in your ways of justice, to find overflowing love of mercy, to desire that our world be more like the world you long for it to be, and to act even in the commercial and political and social spheres of our lives for your kingdom's sake. We give you our lives, and we pray that through us, your name would be honored and glorified. Amen.